Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. The Detroit is Different Podcast is about exposing artistry, business, ideas, and dynamic people, places, and things that make Detroit a mecca. Tune in weekly and subscribe to get the true stories from the people shaping the culture of an American classic city. You're listening to the Piper Carter Podcast on the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. Spinks. Daoud Valid, uh, could you talk a little bit about the significance of the shooting having occurred in Dearborn Heights? Explain what this area is like. Well, the first thing is that uh, people should understand that Metro Detroit suffers from something which is called hypersegregation, in which there are various communities of people who have little to no interaction. It's actually been uh, designed that way. Uh, the city of Dearborn Heights, which borders uh, Inkster, Inkster is one of the blackest areas in the city, in the state of Michigan. Uh, uh, Dearborn Heights is about 80 percent white. There's really no, like, intersection between uh, these communities. They're basically like uh, invisible, invisible fences between communities uh, in southeastern Michigan. Um, and, and to add on to that, uh, there is a history within Dearborn as well as Dearborn Heights of being basically uh, de facto uh, apartheid or the northern Jim Crow. And since there's a history of racism and racial profiling that's gone on for decades and decades in terms of law enforcement with uh, people of color. Peace. You are listening to the Piper Carter podcast here on Detroit is Different. And I'm in the studio with our token millennial, Brittany. Hey, what's going on, Piper? I'm great. I'm great. Also, um, really quick, I'm going to bring our amazing guest into the space and then um, we'll talk about my trip. But uh, I, I'm really honored to have with us the Imam Dawood Walid. What's up? Hands clap. Wa alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Peace. Oh Very my God! Nice to meet you. Yes, it's wonderful to meet you as well. Yes, this is such an honor and a pleasure. So uh, we're going to talk all about you, but right now we're going to talk about me. No, uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. No. Um. So the reason I wanted to start with this is because um, I think of you as the quintessential activist. If you, will. you know, uh, when I think of activism, I think of all the things that you do and um, the spaces that you occupy. And uh, I got a chance to go to San Francisco last week, and it's incredible. I thought about all my activist friends. And you're one of the people I thought of when I was there. Uh, Glad to be thought of. Well, partly because uh, the FBI was messing with me, but also because uh, we were surrounded by police. (laughs) No, but um, yeah, so uh, that's internal jokes, but it's not really funny. So... um, yeah, so, okay, so I'll tell you where I went. Um, there's this thing called GCAS. It was a Global Climate Action Summit, right? And basically, 
it was uh, ma um, governors from all over the world that got together to discuss things like air, water, um, and anything dealing with our climate energy power. Um, I remember how I always told you, like, uh, these type of things are called astroturfing in the green world. Yeah, in the world of green. So um, they all got together to uh, make it seem as though they were discussing how to make the world more green. But really what they were discussing is ways to make money off of all this so-called green stuff that's not green. Like green coal. Like what is that? That doesn't even make sense, right? Uh, like, so did they feel like a marketing convention for like? It's basically product? like a trade show. It was like a trade show for, and and then they were making like political decisions that to like murder us basically with our air and our water. So um, I'm a part of a global uh, network, if you will, and uh, called Grassroots Global Justice. But um, this is a another group. Um, it takes roots which um, includes uh, Climate Justice Alliance and uh, a bunch of other groups. And we did something called um, Soul to Soul, which is um, solutions or, yeah, uh, solidarity to solutions. Mm -hmm. And so basically what that is, is um, looking at, we, well, you've heard of, we always talk about like intersectional. So it's basically looking at all the ways in which our justices can cross one another and we create solutions together. And so basically there's people all over the world that actually, you know, in our communities are like have solutions. And so how do we start to talk to one another so that we have more power? So there was that part of it. It was like a whole like two weeks. So we did an amazing uh, march. Our march was like 30,000 people. Wow. It was uh, covered by every media uh, possible. Um, we had a successful, um, what do you call it, a successful rally. And the rally was successful because at one of the, uh, the meetings, we were able to get four indigenous leaders, real indigenous leaders, because obviously these people have people from the so-called community that they pay to represent the community, right? Mm -hmm. So they'll have their black people in there from the hood that are getting paid to tell you Seriously. that landfills are great and that we love it. Uh, even, and that the incinerator is awesome, even though it's killing us, and right? And so we saw something like that here with Manny Maroon paid off some so-called Negroes to, you know, advocate for him. We've seen that here. Exactly. And it's like, you know, we had, we had, we had folks from uh, Brazil, the Amazon, indigenous folks that came and they got in, the, in their faces and they were like, you're in their language, you know, you're lying. Like, you know, how can you let them do this to you? And they threatened them. Like this is the threat that I actually appreciated, which reminds me of you, Brother Dawood. They got in their face because, like, they were up in the meeting, the ones that were paid off. And we were screaming so much that they went and got them to come down. So they allowed representatives to bring those indigenous folks down to where we were outside. When they came down, they faced them and they looked them in the eye. And they were like, you, you, you know that you are going against our indigenous spiritual beliefs. And you know that God's going to get you. And they were like, oh, and, 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 they, and they were like, yeah, let's bring them because and he, they were like, because you know you're, you're lying and you're killing people, you're not telling the truth, and, and you can get whatever money, but you know that what, what you're going to have to suffer from God. And do you know that they were like, yeah, you're right. 
And then wow. they were able to get those indigenous people to go upstairs with them and, and get in that meeting. How powerful is that? That is. That's, what's up. That's what's up, right? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Accountability of, when accountability goes right. right. Oh, it went so well. And they, and they got in. They got into the meeting. And then, uh, uh, then we had an action. The action, I'm not going to front. I was a little scared. I can't front because, you know, I don't really like being around thousands of people and helicopters up there and hundreds of uh, police surrounding me. That's not a really comfortable feeling. <laughs> but but uh, part of, like, what I do is, like, cultural organizing. So I was a part of organizing, like, the dance and the theater and the arts and things like that. It was a huge team of us. We actually, our action actually made the cover of New York Times, The Guardian, like, and it was really beautiful, but we were actually able to interrupt the agenda of the meeting that day. Like, Mayor Bloomberg, like, different people were like, we can't even focus and concentrate because we were like, we interrupted their agenda. So I would say all in all, that stuff was successful. Um, some stuff I learned from Ruckus Society was there. I got a lot of more deeper direct action training, mm -hmm. tactical training. Can you go into that just a tiny bit? I don't bit? really want to on the okay. mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not that safe. Okay. You're, you're, you're trying to tell the strategies because the enemy is listening, okay. right? Yeah. Oh, my bad. Don't worry about going to that. Just know that it exists. I think that's safe. It is. <laughs> yeah, it my brain just went. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'll tell you offline. But, um, yeah, so that was great. Um, and then I think another thing that was uh, pretty powerful was just, you know, connecting with these people across the globe on all of our, I don't want to say issues, I'm going to say things that, we, that we're passionate about and things that we share. I love it. You know? Um, and, and in real life, we all risk our lives together. I mean, it, in hindsight, it wasn't like a Ferguson, but it wasn't like far from that, right? Because that, that, all that is is a, is a call from, the, from up top, right? That it, uh, right? Ferguson could have gone different if different calls were made, right? Agreed. So you always got to be ready for that, too. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it, can be, it can be fun. I would love to say it was fun. It was fun making the art, connecting with folks, and making those connections. But what was not fun was just really, really thinking about, man, we're, we're fighting. We're fighting for our lives. Why? This doesn't make no sense. But um, anyway, I just want to share that with y'all. So thanks for listening. Thank you. I always come up with little stories and stuff. So. I wanted to segue that into our, uh, into our amazing guest. Um, so our amazing guest is an imam. He's a father. He's a hip-hop aficionado. That's right. He's an, <laughs> an author. Um, he's a, he's an, a, a real black Muslim. <laughs> um, no, a historian. Um, just, you know, uh, all-around great person, an advocate a fighter, a warrior, um, so many things, an activist, activated, like what else? And a director, right? Um, yeah, what else? Like so many things, right? So many great things. With a lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility that, that you actually handle. So let's just know that because we have people who call themselves leaders and then there's actually leaders. Well, and this is a real leader right here. I'll say, like, I, read, I, was reading, I was reading this one article, and it's the, whoever was writing it seemed to be so excited to be talking, to be, uh, talking about you. And one of the things that they mentioned was um, you, your start in hip-hop and how you really paid attention to the narrative and the lyricism in hip-hop during the 90s 
and their love uh, to express um, the nation of Islam. And so one thing that I found interesting, they talked about just your, your, your time frame and your connection to uh, Islam and how, you know, basically in so many words, it said you were not a lukewarm, lukewarm person. And it's funny because my mom has been talking to me about anything that you do, don't be lukewarm. All the, all the, uh, all the prophets, all the socialites always say the lukewarm person is the person that you have to watch the most. And so your transition into understanding Islam, it seems like a lot of people really, really give you praise of turning the switch right on and seeing the things that were needed inside of the community and not being a lukewarm person, actually being very, very, very hot. So I think that was, thought that was awesome to see someone being so excited to write that about you. Yeah, I think I know the story you're talking about. Was it in the Detroit Free Press a Maybe. few years back? I can't remember the, that's been a few just written about that, uh, me in terms of, um, you know, how I got involved in the community and activism and, um, you know, my journey, my spiritual journey. But it really was, my uh, my gateway into my my spiritual understanding where I'm at now is really hip hop. And when I'm talking about hip hop, it's not just simply uh, rap. I'm talking about the elements of hip hop mm -hmm. that I was involved in. I wasn't a graffiti artist, but as far as trying to break back in the day and being a little crew, you know, on the East Coast, I didn't grow up in the D. I didn't move to the D until 1998. Okay. Um, but uh, from that, I used to DJ a little bit, do beats. Um, you know, I actually was uh, with a crew or with a group uh, in Virginia, actually, and the uh, the neo soul artist uh, D'Angelo was actually down with us, and I know him from back in the day when he was in ninth grade. Yeah, I mean, he's he's performed here a couple of times, and I've hooked up with him. Uh, you know, may uh, you know may God bless him and, and guide him. But um, you know, I, I um, was going to uh, to New York. And uh, we were trying to make it in the early 90s. Um, you know, he's the only one that got on. But you know, I, I remember meeting some of the original uh, Source Magazine uh, writers, like like Detroit's own Dream Hampton, you know, and then Vibe. Shouts like, out. I, I remember that, that, whole, that whole vibe when, when, the, when it was, and I, I don't want to say anything, I'll put the, the generation that's down now because everyone has their own vibe. <laughs> but back then... There was a mixture. You had, you had the, the party fun rap, like, you know, two live crew and, and things like that, you know, and you also had the, uh, you know, the, the gangster element. You always had, you start with, with Schooly D, and there was Ice T, of course, and NWA and Ice Cube. But even in the street gangster mood, there was still some sort of call to consciousness, but then you also had, Public Enemy, you know, you had Big Daddy Kane between being the smooth operator and trying <laughs> yeah. to be conscious, um, poor righteous teachers, you know, and so my uh, influence into um, black consciousness, and I've said this many times uh, publicly, is that you know, my dad, he grew up right off of um, Linwood and Claremont, and he's actually, he actually was here on uh, summer break during the 67 uprising. He wow. Was, uh, he was here. But, you know, my dad was into Malcolm and going down to the to the uh, mosque number one. You know, he heard Malcolm speak, you know, down the street. And then later on, uh, H. Rap Brown, a.k.a. Um, Imam Jamil al who's unjustly incarcerated right now. A lot of those people from back then. And uh, he got, back in the day, the first 
print edition of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Wow. And he used to try to get me to read it, and I couldn't read it. But when I saw Malcolm X in the Boogie Down Productions video, mm-hmm. right, then I started hearing Malcolm <laughs> sample in songs and stuff, right? Then you like the Ghetto Boys, right? Like all that mm. stuff, right? That is what inspired me to pick up Malcolm X's autobiography, which helped yeah. me uh, in my spiritual um, uh, journey. I just hope you know how deep that, and Piper, you about to go in a different direction because y'all, you know, but I just hope you know how deep that narrative is for hip hop right now. Yeah. And that, 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 that is, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all of us, but. Yeah. All right. That's a generation, I would say. Because that was me. That was, I'd say the generation, Brother Kefani, shouts out. That was our brother Hassan, rest in peace. Uh, that's a generation. I mean, cause, cause brother Kafani and Hassan, those were, those were my best friends in high school. My big brothers, they actually gave me Shahada. I actually became introduced to Islam the same way. Wow. Yeah. So that was like 80, I'd say any, anywhere from like 87, right? 87, 88. But see, but like back that. then, back then, Piper, see, as you know, and for some of the listeners maybe who don't know, it was cool to be a Muslim. Yes. Back then, I mean, I mean, this was long before nine eleven, right? But yeah. like, but like, to be seen as as Muslim and conscious, like that was what was up mm-hmm. back, like in the late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was like no problem. Yeah, like, that was like, like our it was, Uzi it was no bird. Static, right? For real, for real, <laughs> it was. For real. It was. For real. For real. Like, it was every day. Mainstream. That's what we were. Well, if you were cool, if you were cool, that was the cool people. I mean, I don't mean cool in in a superficial way. The real people that was actually about something. You know, those are people that was into culture, and 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 it was like because hip hop back then was like uh, it's different than now. It was like there was a lot of like, oh, you don't know about this, so it was a. It was a like, oh, you need to seek knowledge. So it That's was like a culture me. of That's seeking knowledge. That's how she knowledge. does me now. <laughs> but, 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 but on the real side, and even the, the people who weren't Muslim, they still would evoke Islamic and Muslim motif. Right. Like, you know, like, like Lauren Hill told me, you know, I, I mix a lot like a Sunni. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I mean, Lauren Hill ain't a Muslim, but right. she used to evoke. I mean, it's, it's a big <laughs> yeah. common. Nas, like yeah. a lot of those different rappers. You know, it, it, was, it was commonplace. And yeah. like you said, like even if that's not what they practiced, the fact that they acknowledged it and the fact that they gave it light was amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I get what you're saying. The deeper thing is just was a part of y'all culture that was was every day. You know what I mean? If mm-hmm. that was in the space you were in to accept it, and it know? meant it meant something. It meant mm-hmm. something. It was actually, I mean, in hindsight, when I think about it, it was it actually like replaced the culture that we didn't have. In yeah. a sense, you know what I mean? Like, and, I mean, if you if you weren't like completely like okay i'm gonna be muslim if you were just even in just the hood it was like yeah that makes more sense to me than this the other thing right and it was inspiring and people used to quote books and authors and some of the songs would even it was like getting people in our generation even acquainted with our history that we weren't being taught in places like in dps or in right. new york I, public schools or whatever i mean it was like you know, uh, um, uh, X Clan and KRS One in many ways probably hipped up a lot of us more to to African culture and yeah. a lot of our roots than I, anything we learned in, in 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 DPS or anywhere else like that. Yeah, right? for sure. Y- y'all remember the third verse of Nas's "I Know I Can." 
Do you not know how many people he hit to just even thinking that way? Because that song, that that album was, uh, was that Godson? You know, that was beyond, you know, like the core of what you guys are talking about. You know, that was when I was like in middle school. And in and, and the third verse, he just starts giving you the basically a timeline of black culture. Like, I don't know. So, right. Stuff like and that. And so that was our mu- Most of our music was like that. Right. Right. You, you know? Well, I want to segue uh, because you said something. Your dad was around here, Linwood, and all that. Where we where we do where we record the podcast is like the Dexter Davison area. Um, one of our masjid, the Muslim Center, is literally like across the freeway. Mm, that's what like just a couple blocks away. And this whole vortex is a very very special vortex. Whether you're going all the way down. So, like you mentioned, the 12th and Claremont, which was where the rebellion started, per se, all the way up here to what we call Elijah Muhammad Boulevard, um, to Mosque Number One, to what is now the Wali Muhammad. I mean, just the history. And, and if you listen to my mom tell the history, because my mom used to go to the nation uh, back in the days, and about the richness that was here, the businesses, the Shabazz restaurant, right. um, everything that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad built up around here, and even uh, moving through uh, to, I'd say, all the way up until now, like even to our brother Mark Crane with the Dream of Detroit. You know what I mean? Like, with, right. like, like purchasing the homes and like putting families in there. Like, this whole vortex is like super special. For for me, for Black Muslim uh, community, I would say. So, can you speak to that? Well, you know, this area is really special. You just think about how Pop and Linwood was back in the day for our people, right around the time of the of the '67 rebellion. And obviously, I've only heard stories about it, but I mean, you guys think about just that little area. You start off with um, you got that. Um, Shrine of Black Madonna. You had New Bethel Church with C.L. Franklin's right. Church. Right. And then you came down, then you had the, the mosque that was down the street. Right. So there was a lot of things that were going on as far as, uh, you know, black intellectuals, you know, the um, lot of activism that was going on back in the time. And, and, and a lot of it was, like, very close by uh, to this, this area. Um, it has been... Uh, unfortunate that uh, some of the presence has waned uh, for various reasons and the, the conscious community and Muslims being part of that aren't as, as out there as they used to be. And there's numerous factors. I know that one factor is just simple uh, economics and dollars make sense. I know many people that grew up in the, off the Linwood community, that mosque. Uh, some at the Muslim Center close by too, they went uh, university could have been University of Michigan, Spelman, uh, Howard, and they came back here and really couldn't get decent jobs. I know a lot of them in Atlanta right now. Like when I go to the the mosque in Atlanta, it seems like a quarter of the 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 of uh, the people in the big mosque in Atlanta are actually Detroiters, mm. right? Same thing going to to um, D.C. Uh, same mm. thing in New York, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people that are part of this community that are like a little bit younger than us, maybe like in like their late 20s, early 30s, they bounced. Mm-hmm. They simply just couldn't 
you know, get the jobs and the economic opportunities. And that was that was an unfortunate drain mm-hmm. on a lot of the, you know, the, the, the activism and the really the energy that used to be in this area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. And now, though, it seems as though there's a, some energy coming back. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully we can be a part of a lot of that energy. I know um, our brother Mark Crane, he's he's working real hard over there. I know we're working real hard over here with Detroit is Different. Um, and, yeah, and then I, I definitely go to uh, Juma, you know, right down the block at Wiley Muhammad. I try to split my time, <laughs> you know, between the, the various moshes, you know. But I feel like uh, within, because this area is not one of those areas that is the designated, like, jewel <laughs> of the city, right. you know, because there's a lot, because Detroit has this um, investment divestment plan. This is definitely one of the areas that um, has been and is being divested from regarding the city's plan. Well, the city's given up on this area. They've given up. Now. Yeah. I wonder what that... City government, I mean. I city government, what that yeah. An, why, when they analyze it, why? Like, with this, you know, the what makes them look at it on a map? Because you know that's how they're looking at it and all these different numbers. Why, they, why, they, why they're... It was the least amount of occupied homes per capita. So they did, so they did it, and then they created this plan called, you know, Detroit Future City Plan, which the mayor says he doesn't follow, but he's actually following to the letter. But besides that, um, it's schools just metrics. Schools down here too. Yeah. The schools, you know. Was schools. it McKenzie over here, or is that um too? That's too far away. No, this would have been Central. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Central Northwestern. Those schools. But yeah, but I mean, but that's the beauty, right? of the Masjid community, of the Muslim Center community, and, and also Detroit is different because we're like, oh, okay, that's what y'all are doing. <laughs> we're doing this over here. You know, and so that's, that's, that's really amazing. So, yeah. So now I want to talk a little bit, because um, I want to make sure that we talk about your, your, your writing. I want to say, um, I want to say this before I get into your books. You have a blog. And you have like a verb, like a, a a spoken blog and written blog, or you write and you and you have yeah, and um, you speak a lot and teach a lot about women in Islam, and so uh, I wanted to see if you could um, talk to us about maybe why you do that and speak to us a little bit about the importance of that. Well, you know, I have a platform, so I try to use my platform and elevate certain issues. Uh, besides, also, I actively uh, encourage different organizations to actually invite uh, Muslim sisters. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, Muslim sisters are empowered and can speak on, on on their behalf as well, and they can talk about issues better than you know someone like me, six foot one with a beard. Right? <laughs> but no, I do I do try to talk about uh, those issues and highlight um, not only historical figures in Islamic history that come from uh, very praiseworthy and and saintly, uh, intelligent women, but also the the rights that that the Islamic faith uh, instituted and gave women going back 1,400 years ago to try to clarify some misperceptions, because many people will uh, look at not only certain people's culture and confuse culture with religion, but will look at certain, like, uh, hyperbolic 
speech or uh, frames that are shown in corporate media mm-hmm. and try to use certain regions or certain anomalies to try to make those like what is the, the actual norm. Like, like, for instance, my last international trip, uh, I was in uh, Ghana. I was in um, for two weeks. I spoke at a couple of conferences. Uh, I was in Accra, um, Tamale, uh, Takrade, and then I went to the Elmina uh, slave castle, which is the oldest slave castle in, mm-hmm. uh, in West Africa, where our people were first brought here to, to, uh, to America. Um, you see women there, women run and control the marketplace, mm. right? And, and a lot of those are Muslim women. You can, you can tell by how they're dressed, but their Muslim women are up in there and they run the market. Like how you see the fruit of Islam, like at the, at the yeah. stoplights, mm-hmm. selling the fruits and selling the papers. And in, in Ghana, it's the Muslim sisters that okay. are there. I mean, people are hustling. You know, they might, they might be holding a baby and got, mm. the, and got the fruit basket on top of their head and they got some papers okay. or some, and got some yogurt drinks out there um, hustling. So women are on the streets running the marketplaces, but they're also in academia, mm-hmm. you know, on TV, um, you know, newscasters and the whole nine, right? So, like, people need to go, and for all of those of you who are, are listening who haven't gone uh, back to West Africa, I strongly suggest, uh, you know, foregoing your vacation to the Bahamas or taking your kids to Disneyland yeah. and go to Senegal, right? Yeah. Go to Dakar, go to, go to Accra in Ghana, go to Bamako in Mali or some of these places that I've gone and you'll see something different about Islam and you'll also see the people there welcome you. That's another myth that we've been told that the um, Chuck has fooled many of our African brothers when they come here and immigrate to stay away from us and then they've told us that African people don't want us over there. But I'm telling you, when I went there, I had people telling me, welcome home. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, like um, when I was at Gory Island, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the brothers told me, I know I'm sorry for being long with it, but I have to tell us one story, is that, you know, they have something called the 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 uh, the, the door of no return. Right. It's called, or it's called the gate of no return at Gory Island. And this is where our people would be taken off of the ships and sent to places like Charleston, South Carolina, Georgia, the ports. And they called the door of no return because the white man said that, you know, and it was believed that once uh, an enslaved African got on that ship, they would never make it back. So one of the guys, he's, um, he's a uh, uh, Wolof in, um, at, at Gory Island. You know, I was sitting back and I was, you know, Tears were well up in my eyes, and the brother walked up to me and said, "You know," he said, "He said the two bob, two bob means white, in, uh, in Wolof." He said, "You know, the two bob cost door no return, but uh, and they said that African people never make it back." But he said, "Praise be to Allah, you're back, you're here. So the children mm. of Islam have returned." And he came and he hugged me, and I. Um, I haven't cried that hard in my adult life. Wow. You know, but it was a powerful... So anyway, go to Gory Island or Elmina. Um, you know, go back and, 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 um, and see. Uh, our people are waiting for us. There's, there's dual mm-hmm. citizenship opportunities. I'm thinking about getting a, a piece of property and, and maybe bouncing if stuff gets too, 
you know, you know, dicey in the future. You know, you right. always have a backup plan, right? Yeah. But I'm saying, but we can go over there. So our our, our people, um, our people are looking for us to come over there and help teach, make investments, and everything. So I'm telling you, like, check it out. Take a take a, a vacation to West Africa. Mm. After the show, I have to send Piper this video, and I don't know if either of you have seen it, but my friend sent it to me, and it it went viral. And it was of a general or someone of high importance in a South African city. And he was speaking and talking about how the world sees Africa as a resource. Mm -hmm. And that's the only time the world cares about coming into Africa. Mm. And that when they do come there, they're not, they're not a resource. of They don't see the people of Africa as a resource. They see the lions. Save the lions. Save the tigers. Save the giraffes. Um, here's the coffee beans, here's the gold. That's the, only, that's the world's viewpoint of Africa. And when it comes to the people, they don't care. So he begged and pleaded what you just mentioned, that black people all around the world are suffering from the same narrative, and that if they come to Africa and help Africa build, they will too find peace. And that mm. he begged and said, we around the world have to stop separating ourselves due to the systematic things that have happened to us all. We're from the same place, come back, see it, and understand the importance of that. So I think that is um, real that you just broke that down like that. Sister, I had an elder, a tribal elder in a city called Tuba, the second largest city in Senegal. He started lecturing me with a group of people said, y'all over there getting shot by the police. They over there abusing y'all. Why don't you come back home? Wow. You got to deal with that here. Why don't you... Why don't you come back home? I mean, you know, we, we still got to do what we need to do here, and everyone can't, can't do that. We still need to, to, to try to str struggle for freedom, justice, and equality here in, in this land that our ancestors helped build. I'm not saying that we all need to go back. I'm just saying that it's just to reiterate what I said before and what you're saying, that people there really want us to come back there and work with them and invest, and they would rather do business with us than having all these Europeans who have bad mm. intentions coming over there, um, you know, uh, molesting the land and, and, and stealing mm. all the uh, all of the resources. Yeah. You know, they they want to do business with us. I went to the shea butter factory and see where they made the shea butter at. You know, wow. I visited the sister. I got pictures of that in Pamela in 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 Ghana. Wow. You know, I mean, you know, we could go over there and do some business. Okay. I believe that. I mean, for real, real talk. No, real talk. So let's okay. That's a great segue. I want to bring us to your um your your book. Well, the book that you have now because you have more books coming. Right. Um, centering the um centering black narrative, black Muslim nobles among the early pious Muslims. So, uh, now I haven't read the whole book, but I've read the book. Like I read the book. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. And uh. I'm gonna be honest with you. It's way above my like academic level. <laughs> you use a lot of it. I gotta read it. No, it's okay. I gotta read it in pieces. But um, no, I, I put this book. Um, I don't know if you guys read any like Sheikh Anta Diop. Um, any anybody that reads like so, cause like any any anybody reads anything like that, anything historical, but uh, scientific historical, you know, but like in a, in a so we've got these history books that are, like, given to us. Mm -hmm. But then we have our scholars who have given us our history and given us uh, our history. 
You know what I mean? Like our history. And so I would consider you in that category of like a Sheikh Antibiyah, like one of our scholars that is going to give us our narratives, our stories, our words, our history, our, um, our voices. And I would say in ways that are scientific. That's the only way I can put it. Um, and I, I appreciate, I appreciate um, this, this work because to me, I don't know if it's being implemented in, um, on the collegiate level, but, uh, but it definitely needs to be. Like, this definitely needs to be a textbook. It's being used right now in uh, one class at, at, at Morehouse. Okay. Yeah. 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 This is like, if anybody now is a professor and they're teaching in any history class or any uh, Africana studies class or, uh, shoot, not, it don't have to be Africana studies. It could just be history, you know? It could just be, uh, what is it called? The, the study of civilizations. <laughs> uh, one of those types of classes. This needs to be like one of those textbooks. A required textbook. Um, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. So can you speak about this work? This and well, then going well, I, to the next well, one. Well, I appreciate you mentioning it. So this book, uh, Centering Black Narrative, Black Muslim Novels Among the Early Pious Muslims, was really written uh, basically for three audiences in mind. One is for uh, black people who are Muslim, all right, because a lot of the Islamic history has been whitewashed, so we want to restore uh, blackness back to its proper uh, level. Um, the uh, the second level, the second uh, audience is for black folks in general uh, who aren't Muslims, just to learn more about your own history, right? Um, irrespective of, of, of whether you're uh, not not found in Islamic faith. And the third uh, audience is really for those Muslim who aren't black, who perhaps hold some anti-black sentiments to also get them to know more about their tradition. One of the things that we clarify, and I know others have written about this, and you mentioned the great uh, Sheikh Anta Diop, uh, or Anta Jope. I actually uh, had the, the privilege back in December 2016 of visiting his university in Dakar, mm. named after him. Um, that, uh, and he's written on this as well as Jay, Jay Rogers, who wrote that series, Sex and Race. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivan Van Sertema has touched on some of this right. as well, uh, about the, they came before Columbus, touching on this. Another but, great work. But there's, there's this misunderstanding about um, black Arab mutual exclusivity, which really doesn't exist. And when you look at the historical writings, you'll see that the original Arabs of the lower Arabian Peninsula actually were black and saw themselves as being black and mm-hmm. actually used that language. And, uh, and also that uh, we go by looking at the world by boundaries that were really drawn by Europeans or white folk. Mm-hmm. So there was really a historical relationship. Like, like who said that Arabia wasn't part of Africa, right, or didn't have mm-hmm. a connection? is white folks that said that. White folks came up with the term Middle East because the British Empire divided the world. They had a Near East, a Middle East, and a Far East, or the so-called mm. Orient. So sometimes we use language and look at the world based upon uh, frames that were given to us by the very people who subjugated us. So uh, 
this book, and also to be clarified, you know, the Arab is not a race, like Latino is not a race. Like there's Latinos with light skin and blue eyes, and then you got Pele, right? Mm-hmm. And same thing with, 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 with Arabs, you have lighter skin Arabs uh, in the area such as Levant or greater Syria, who basically are um, Arabs who over centuries got lighter because they, um, you know, they had children by Turkish women, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Persian women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have, um, you know, you have Arabs that are in the south of Yemen and Sudan who are, who are jet black, right? So, so Arab in and of itself is not a, a so-called uh, race. So and we, we wrote about this in the book besides uh, uh, mentioning a number of historical personalities that we felt that were important from early history, uh, both, um, both Ethiopians as well as Nubians, but also Arabs who, by how they were described typically, would look like any brother or sister walking down Mack and Bewick or walking down West Davison and Dexter, right? So, right. It's a it's, it's it's a really powerful tool. Um, I feel like like you mentioned the Ivan Van Sertima. I read that one often. That to me, that's just not a book I could sit and read cover to cover like that. But there are times when I I use it as a reference book. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like this book is kind of like that for me, like a reference book. Um, there's times I like I go and I hear a cookbook or uh, or a story or whatever. Um, I think it's a good book to be able to like put things into perspective. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times, uh, you know, when 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 we when we get into our blackisms or we have our <laughs> when we when we have conversation, like sometimes our facts are not. <laughs> sometimes our facts are not. We have feelings, but our facts are not like always there. Mm-hmm. But we feel things, and it's not that we're like so so mm-hmm. off. But I think it's a really great book, like to to just check yourself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like to, to like get into to, to like look for references because I feel like it's also important to have these references. And um, I, I find it a great tool because um, much of our history and much of our tools don't come from people, don't come from us. And so it, it just has me questioning, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say the validity, but it just has me questioning, like, you know, just the, the 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 authenticity of it all, or do you know what I'm saying? But this but this is a piece that I know is well uh, researched. You know, I know you as a person, you're a researcher. Um, well, I have one other yeah. important point to make, Viper, and this yeah. is something that's a flaw about even how many people, including some black folks, write about um, Africa and old African history. Yeah, is that they write about Africa and they talk about African history, but their primary texts that they're referencing are texts that were written by white folks or in European languages. So what's very important and different about our book is that our book is written from books that came from manuscripts that was written in Arabic, in which myself and my co-author translated from Arabic into English. So see, we didn't... I'm not writing about Africa... Or writing about uh, Arabia going back 14 centuries ago and reading about it from a white man in a, right. in a white man's language. Exactly. And, see, and that's part of the flaw of how um, I feel that some people, uh, when they talk about Africana studies, 
you can't really write about that old history of, of all of your primary source material is coming from European languages, predominantly written by white folks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And trying to reinterpret it to, 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 to suit your own fancy. That doesn't work. Exactly. exactly. So thanks for clarifying that. And I think that that's exactly, you know, the way that we're going to get back to who we actually are. You know what I mean? Like, and so I will say though, that, uh, it is, it is, it is, uh, something that you have to like pace yourself. You know what I'm saying? And, and I would say that, um, for those of us who were looking for like real, um, useful tools for our children, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a great one. Um, and maybe you can create curriculum and things out of it. I don't know if you have curriculum for children out of this, um, but I can see it being broken down for teenagers, um, especially people that homeschool their kids. Uh, but, yeah, th- this one right here, I got to put this in the category with the uh, Ivan Van Sertema. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just one of those books that, like, you, like, you, you need to own this book. That's what I'm saying. It's a great reference book. You got to own it. There's uh, a national organization called NISIS, Muslim Interscholastic Tournament, and they have academic competitions all throughout uh, the country. But there's another school called Al-Ikhlas Training Academy from Detroit, Birmingham, Tramick. Uh, they have the books there they use for school. But uh, last, starting uh, this past year, that book was used uh, nationwide for um, the history history quizzes mm-hmm. so basically like when the kids went and compete like some of the questions they would be asked were relating directly from the book oh that wow. was, so that's that's, that's great. good uh, hopefully we can get um volume two uh will hopefully be out uh later on in, in, uh, in october and it's centering black narrative and the um the subtitle will be uh well, Centering Black Narrative, Ahlul Bayt, Blackness in Africa. Ahlul Bayt means the people of the household, meaning Prophet Muhammad's family. And so we are writing about how the final prophet of Islam, Muhammad, um, the blackness that came from his ancestors. Right? You're going to get in and, trouble with that. Well, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, it's just, but the relationship that they had of actually going into Africa, like even one of his, I believe it's his great grandmother, was Ethiopian. But mm-hmm. just going back into the roots, and then how his offspring, and who they uh, who they married, and who they had children by, how they were described by by the Arabs themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be. So we start off with that early generation, and then we end with one of the Prophet Muhammad's descendants from the uh, the nineteenth century, who was a um, he resisted French colonialism in Senegal. His mm-hmm. name is his name is Amadou Bamba. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was. Uh, in uh, in Senegal, and he was um, sent into exile in, in Gabon, okay. right? So uh, that's so that's the last historical figure that we're going to mention uh, that we have mentioned in the book. But he is the founder of the city called Touba that I went to, which is the second largest city in uh, in, in, in Senegal. Um, wow, uh, Ahmadou Bamba. But yeah, it was we're talking about his struggle against the, um, uh, the the French colonialists, you know, who came in and, you know, the French, the French probably did more damage than the British overall as far as the colonization. Mm. Uh, of, of I Africa. heard, I well, I've read that they damage. were the most brutal. Mm. 
of of all so like of the dutch of the uh the, the belgium were pretty brutal too okay. they only did the congo but you know they committed something mm. the belgium in the congo committed something similar to like what hitler did to jews Ooh, wow. um, as far as the numbers of africans that now, there's a good book written about this called king leopold's ghost okay it came out about a decade ago but um yeah I mean, europeans and you know fist pumped to, to Ethiopia because yeah. out of all the countries in Africa, Ethiopia, which also includes the time Eritrea, they were the only country in Africa that, that did not get colonialized by the white man. Mm. Ethiopia. So you know and they But what about uh, Italy? That didn't colonize them? No, they they occupied it for a short period of time during okay. the World War, but they didn't get a chance to fully establish themselves. So the Ethiopians, they still used their ancient Amharic right. like alphabet. They still like like they don't have English as their official language right. or Italian mm-hmm. or like they like they still you know, they're the people that were able to preserve mm-hmm. their their culture and outside influences uh, the most were, were the uh, the people of Ethiopia and Eritrea. So this pump to Ethiopia. Oh my god. I have something um to say but you're I haven't read your book. I haven't read your book, and I am going to um, make it a number one priority to to divulge myself into it. But one thing after after looking at um, other people's thoughts in it, a lot of people felt the same way as Piper online that I saw. But the biggest thing that I got from it, and from and I appreciate you as a writer. Uh, I don't care if you're a rapper. I don't care if you're a professor. I love when people give who their their tar- target audience is. So thank you for letting us know who mm-hmm. who you wrote that to. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, what I gained from looking at other people's viewpoints on your book is that you want the world to understand. You have this strong yearning for people to just understand first and foremost. Don't have an opinion. Um, before you try to provide a solution, let's un- let's have an understanding. So with that being said, my question for you is, is all the different places that you have been blessed to give knowledge to, where did you feel the connection of where you walked in and did not necessarily feel like people would understand the most, but when you looked out and saw their reactions and how they interacted with you during your lecture or whatever it is you were doing, that they understood you more than what they did before they walked into the room in your subject matter? That's a that's a difficult question, but I would probably say um, it was about a year and a half ago when I spoke at the University of Chicago, and uh, the primary audience were people from the Black Student Union, okay. um, and the majority of those people weren't Muslim. And when I started, I mean, the hours were pro-black already, but when they heard some of the history and how it broke down, um, you know, it, I, it, was trans, it was transformative. And I could mm. see it in many people's mm. eyes and even the comments that they had afterwards. I think that, you know, what they heard was what they were expecting. Mm. That's powerful. Well, I want to segue. We're going to have to bring you back when the next work comes out. You said, you said, uh, Mate, you said you're going to do something in October, and then you're going to have it available later, right? Yeah, so there's one book that I'm uh, co-authored with my co-author. Redundant. There's a second <laughs> volume of Centering Black Narrative that's coming out in October, and that'll be on Amazon.com, like uh, volume one's on right now. 
Uh, but there's another book that I wrote that's coming out uh, also in October, and it's a solo project. And it's called, uh, it's titled Towards Sacred Activism. That mm. should be out by October the 5th. It's, it's looking like it's um, it's being, should be being in, like in the printing stage right now. Um, okay. So that's going to be out. And Towards Sacred Activism is coming more from an Islamic theological perspective, but it can be used by you know, Christians, you know, mm-hmm. Hebrews, whoever wants to, to use it and just take your own text, your own faith tradition, you can kind of like, uh, you know, take the broader frame framework from it. But, you know, I believe that uh, activism, and especially when we're talking about racial justice, mm-hmm. that um, legislation and adjudication is not enough to heal America. So, like, uh, no amount of legislation from the federal government or the state government, um, no amount of uh, policies uh, for body cameras and things like that, uh, or not using tasers, uh, and no amount of adjudication in courts, meaning lawsuits, civil rights lawsuits, um, and even if there are criminal convictions, uh, that's not going to get away with racism and and, and the long-term psychological effects of white supremacy, not just on the victims, which are black folks and other people of color, but also the long-term psychological effects that have taken place against white people who can't even see their uh, the reality of white normalcy in America, much mm. less white privilege, right? Because we, we live in a society of white normalcy, right? I mean, even down to, I was going to mean the day, and someone commented, like, even how uh, when Band-Aid uses this, the color of Band-Aid is natural or naked, that's the, <laughs> that's the color of, of natural for, for, for white folks. Like, mm-hmm. that, that's not like, 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 right. like, they're not natural for Wesley Snipes. Right. You dig? So, th- that's... It's not even thought. They don't, that's not even, even thought. It's not even thought because, yeah. because they consider themselves to be the standard of, of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, you know, towards sacred activism is trying to give a, a some definitions on what really is justice, right? Like mm-hmm. we talk about, we all want justice, but what is a spiritual definition of justice, right? Mm-hmm. And then what are the manners or the etiquettes that we should go about where we can hopefully try to give healing to the victims, but also offer a path of redemption to the victimizers. They have right. to be given a path towards redemption. There has to be some healing involved or else or, or else, uh, the victimizers are going to continuously be defensive, like most of these Trump supporters, for instance. Uh, and, and, and then we're going to keep on marching, saying no justice, no peace, and we're going to keep on getting shot by the police. We're going to keep on having Ugh. this housing discrimination. We're going to keep on having this, this uh, red line, and we're going to keep on, and all these other things that we're dealing with on the right. institutional yeah. level, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's going to continue until we have sacred activism. And that's what I'm writing about, and this is, you know, this is my framework. So I want to bring you back. Uh, Please, to, I want to bring you back to talk about that. So we want to go talk about that work, um, and I want to bring you back to talk more about the work you do with CARE. Okay. But um because that's really key. But the work so I but before you go, I wanted to mention 
um, a couple of things. So one thing is that I said you're an advocate, and that's part of the work you do, just in general, but you also do that with care. Right. Um, I wanted to name, like, three cases. One case is not in Detroit. That case um, is the Botham Jean case that's going on right now. That's the one, the, the brother that was murdered from Texas, from Dallas. Yeah. He was in his home. For those who uh, haven't been paying attention, he was at home. Uh, a white woman, off, uh, so-called off-duty officer that was in uniform. Right. Uh, they had completely uh, opposite stories just generating every day over like a three-day period. First, she said that the first account was that she went home after first they said it was 12 hours, then they said it was 15 whatever, uh, and that she was tired. She said she tried her key in the door and that um, he opened the door and she thought it was her apartment, so she shot him dead twice in the chest. The next story was that the door was ajar, even though it's one of those hotel key type doors that uh, that can't actually, like, you know, just be left open. It has, like, one of those kind of, like, a suction... Full locks. Um, And it also, um, when you put your key in there, it turns uh, green if it's your apartment and red if it's not. Right. He had a red rug outside of his uh, apartment. She did not. She had a dog. He didn't. Um, Anyways, she claims that uh, she, uh, that the door was ajar and she, quote unquote, gave him verbal commands uh, and then in his own in his own pad. And he was sleeping, you know. And supposedly she comes there by accident, giving him verbal commands, and she sees a silhouette, but is somehow able to shoot him point blank in the chest twice. Um, yeah. So there's that. The mar- the Texas marshal takes her away to get her story together because the it took her three days for them to like release her name because first they didn't release her name, then they released the name, then DPD, um, that's Dallas Police Department. Uh, they had the warrant ready and it was going to be for manslaughter, even though it should be for like first degree murder. Right. Um, and so then the, the, uh, what is it called? The, what do they call themselves? The marshal or the, uh, Texas Ranger. The Ranger. So the Ranger swoops her up. Right. And I guess, uh, she's chilling with them now. I don't know where she is right now, but she was with them for like a week. I think she's on bond now. Is she on bond? Maybe on bond. Okay, so she's relaxing. Uh, he had a funeral. He, they can't find, like, first of all, this brother's, like, uh, pristine. I mean, not that it matters, though. I don't want to put uh, respectability politics into anything. Right. Uh, I don't want to do that. But I will say this. The brother only has on suits. They can't even find any sort of incriminating picture of him, so they decide to make up a story that he had some marijuana in his home, even though they have not checked her home to see what she has in there, mm. right? She's the one who's delusional <laughs> and doesn't know where she lives. Sorry for my laugh. Yeah, right? Not him. So anyway, just want to set us up with that one because here we are in Detroit with a very similar story. But before we go to that story, I just wanted to honor that you were also integral 
in supporting the family of our brother Mu with our beloved Imam Luqman and the foolishness of the, a raid. Like, just can you just speak to that case, like, at all? Um, you know, just because this police thing is like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, so I'm going to speak to two and one because it relates to the brother that just got killed by DPD, Detroit police, um, the morning of September 14th. So it's, it's all connected to the killing of Imam Luqman. So in October 2009, um, the, uh, an imam of a mosque called Meshul Haq was lured to a, a commercial warehouse um, by a, a confidential informant who was faking like he was Muslim, uh, like he converted Islam, a, a white guy going by the name of Jabril. And uh, this guy, Jabril, had been, I don't know what his real name was, government name is, but he was taking um, brothers over there, you know, giving them uh, odd jobs to move things in a commercial, I mean, a real commercial warehouse in Dearborn where there's like trucks and stuff like that. So the... U.S. attorney at the time was uh, Terrence Berg. Then he got, then his replacement was uh, Barbara McQuaid. They uh, bring forth these uh, indictments claiming that uh, there was a, cr a criminal conspiracy to move stolen goods. But there were no stolen goods because the government spent millions of dollars uh, surveilling Imam Lukman and his congregation for three years trying to set them on a so-called terrorism uh, investigation, which they found no terrorism. So they uh, called, they, they said that, you know, that supposedly they were involved in some, like, uh, moving some stolen goods, but they weren't stolen as far as conspiracy. They used a government informant. The, people, the, the brothers thought they were just doing some odd jobs for a white brother who, you know, who, who they thought was a business person, right? So the... Uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force in April, this is 28, 2009, they do a raid with about 80 law enforcement officers from the FBI, Detroit Police Department, Dearborn Police Department, Michigan State Police, Immigration Customs Enforcement. They even had one Royal Canadian Mountie for guy. I don't even know why, why wow. he needed to be there. They had helicopters. They came into the warehouse after the uh, the informant left, and uh, they released an attack dog on uh, Imam Lukman, and then the police claimed that he pulled out a gun and shot the attack dog, supposedly. And then they said that that, they, that gave them reason to shoot him 21 times because, according to law enforcement, a, uh, uh, a police canine is supposedly a law enforcement officer. Wow. Now, when we did our own independent investigation, we're um, trying to sue, and our, our case got thrown out on something flimsy on a, on a standing issue. What we found out is there were nothing, the so-called gun that the imam supposedly had, he had none, none of his fingerprints were on it. There was no paraffin test. There was no proof of any gunpowder on his hands. Uh, on his corpse, none of his DNA was on the gun, and he like he was bleeding, right? Mm. Like 21, 21 shots. They shot him in the back once, and shot him in the groin mm. in his private parts as well. Mm. Um, so, in that raid was a brother by the name of Abdullah Beard, and he got caught up and was um, wrongfully 
indicted in that case because he was in the warehouse. He was a witness to when the FBI killed Imam Luqman. By the way, Imam Luqman was a target of the government because he was doing fundraising for the appeal of H. Rap Brown, a.k.a. Imam Jamil Al-Amin, who had been a target of the of the federal government since the COINTELPRO days in Diego Hoover. Right. Okay, so he was working, trying to work on raising money for his appeal. That's how he got targeted. Uh, and H. Rap Brown was a part of which, the last poets? Uh, no, no. No, he wasn't? No, H. Rap Brown, uh, I believe, was at SNCC at one time. Oh, okay, he was okay. affiliated with the Panthers, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, okay. But, um, um, so, Brother Abdullah Beard was indicted on that. Now, we fast forward to September 14, 2018, and he's in his house, and there was a five-year-old girl who had been shot um, and on another block, and the police, I don't know what type of so-called intelligence they had, but they got no-knock warrant and went into Brother Abdullah's house at 4.50 a.m., totally dark. He's mm, sleeping. Mm. They do the percussion grenade thing and knock the door down and bum-rush the house. Then Brother Abdullah gets shot 21 times. Now, now, they said that he had a gun even though the first police camera uh, video doesn't show any gun because it's dark, right? Um, so they claim that, you know, then later on there's a gun next to him. Um, and, that, and then now they came back and said, oh, you know, we, we mistakenly went to the wrong house, you know, because Abdullah, no one there was the shooter of the, of the five-year-old girl, but now he's dead. But even if he was a shooter... They shouldn't have done it that way, but see, there was no uh, there was no arrest warrant. It was only a search warrant to enter the premises. So we have some questions. Let's say he did have a gun, right? Um, look, if I'm asleep and someone bum rushed my door like at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, I hear a loud, a loud bang. I'm thinking that someone's doing a home invasion or or a robbery. Right, I'm right. gonna reach for my handgun, right? I'm gonna yeah. reach for, for a gun, but uh, we don't. E- we're not even sure if he even had a gun. So we're doing our mm. own private investigation. Um, there's, a, um, there's an autopsy, that independent autopsy that our organization paid for that was done. We have not, uh, we have not gotten the full results of that back yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because then if he had a gun, you know, uh, some gunpowder should have showed up on him right. around his hand, right? right. So I mean, anyway... My point is that this brother, nine years later, was shot 21 times, just like Imam Luke, Luke 21. On some on some flim-flam. And, you know, it's like the police keep getting away with it. Now, in this particular case, the Michigan State Police are coming in to, uh, to so-called independently investigate. But like I told one of the brothers yesterday with the family, I said, you know, that's kind of like a fox uh, trying to uh, investigate the wolf about whether he ate some chickens. Because mm. see, foxes and wolves both eat chickens at the chicken coop. Right. So, you know, you can't trust a fox necessarily mm-hmm. to, 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 to investigate a wolf. And this is, this is an old analogy Malcolm X used, by the way. It's not my analogy. He talked about just between a fox and a wolf. Great analogy. Right. So, um, 
we're dealing with this issue. We've, we've known so many people that have been killed unjustly. Um, you know, and there weren't real consequences or even more importantly, changes in procedure like the, the late Ron Scott that I used to do police work with. I remember when Ian Stanley Jones, that little girl, got killed yeah. by Detroit police. They went in there early in the morning, same thing. Same thing. Bum rushed the door, you no, know, lay at night, it's dark. Yeah. And then they shot shot her and killed her. I remember seeing her blood on the sofa mm. when I went to the to the, 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 mm. the house the next morning. They went to the wrong address. Right. You know, in that situation. Um, I mean, we worked on the issue. I know Dream and I did, but the whole thing with uh, with with Renisha McBride when she got murdered in Dearborn right. Heights, and I mean, they questioned the dude and let him stay at home for about almost a whole week. He's sitting back chilling, eating pizza. And, I mean, you remember that situation, yeah. right? I mean, he ended up getting uh, charged, but he didn't get first. He didn't get first degree murder either. He he literally looked out and saw who she was and like shot her through the screen, Mm-mm. right? Yeah. So I mean, you know, like. When you know when will it end? So we have to keep on uh, uh, fighting. But I tell people who are listening that we need to care each and every one of us about every single one of these cases because when Brother Abdullah got killed Friday morning, September fourteenth, he didn't know that night when he went to sleep with his family that they were going to bum rush his door. See, right. we, see, we never know when our homes will get bum rushed or we get pulled to the traffic stop and be like Sandra Bland. See, we don't, yeah. know, we don't know. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to really be vigilant and take every single case as if it's ourselves or our own kin. Mm-hmm. That, that's the reality of it. So I know there's a, a GoFundMe. Um, I'm sorry, a launch good. Yeah. So the, um, the launch good is launchgood.com so it's l-a-u-n-c-h-g-o-o-d.com uh forward slash project forward slash justice underscore f-o-r underscore a-b-d-u-l-l-a-h underscore beard so that's launchgood.com forward slash project justice underscore four underscore Abdullah underscore beard. And then there's a hashtag. It's called justice for Abdullah beard. So it's uh, J-U-S-T-I-C-E-F-O-R-D-U-L-L-A-H-B-E-A-R-D. Um, I feel like one thing people can do is donate to the launch good. Another thing people can do is share the story. Another thing people can do is share the hashtag. What's some other stuff that people can do? Let me pray for his family. Prayer, we, we can never underestimate the, the power of prayer. And, you know, we say our thoughts and prayers with people. We need prayers and we need action, right? So there's some action steps. And if there's any, um, if there's any further action um, regarding any protests or anything like that that needs to be helped or the legal fund, that will also be under the hashtag, so you can check that. But I mentioned prayers because Brother Abdullah, who's African-American, um, his wife is an immigrant from the West African country, Mali. And all of her family is back in Africa right now. So just imagine that mm. your, your only family is your husband, and the police come and murk him. Mm. 
kill him, you know, shoot him 21 times, and then you're in a country completely away from your family and your mm-hmm. support system, and you know, then you gotta bury your bury your husband, right? Like that's that's deep. Yeah. That's deep. So, you know, we just lift her up in prayer and you know, just stay connected to the hashtag, and there, there'll be more. Uh, for those who live in Victoria, I'm sure there'll be some more news uh, that you'll see uh, coming out in the, in the uh, if not in the mainstream media, definitely on our own social media. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you um, for sharing this story with us and uh, for the our Muslim community that's here um, in Detroit, especially um, our immediate community where... Um, our beloved brother uh, was in constant, you know, communication with folks and commune and, you know, spending time and, and, and you spend time with him and he spent time with you and you have stories and things like that. Um, these things are important, you know what I'm saying, to like keep these stories and keep, you know, people's memories lively um, and share, you know, positive stories about our brother because this is the time when media wants to like create alternative yeah, alternative narratives. So let's share these narratives that we have, these positive narratives that we have about you know great times and and and, and him as a father and him as a brother and a community loved one. Um, let's continue to keep that legacy going um, as well. Um, and thank you for you know stopping by. And sharing, you know, a bit of yourself with us. You're going to have to come back again because we got to get... So, there's so much to you, so many layers and complexity. We can't get it all into, like, I mean, one on show. YouTube, I was scrolling, but long. I had to click on the Al Sharpton. <laughs> I was like, oh, you was on Al Sharpton? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've probably been on everything. Yeah, that was cool. But, you know something, uh, and I'll say this in conclusion, and we have to wrap up, but, you know, I've been on MSNBC and CNN and uh, NPR, a number of things. Democracy Radio Now, Center. all yeah. that. Uh, Eric old radio show, Democracy Now. But really, when I, and I'm saying this real talk, that there's no glory on being in these media outlets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a responsibility mm-hmm. uh, to represent the community. I'm never on for good news. Mm-hmm. And then also... You know, when I'm on talking about certain issues, uh, the opposition who's against our community and against us as, as, as people, um, they don't like it. So they be coming so, at you hard. So, I mean, I've gotten death threats. They be coming at you hard. I've, uh, I've gotten you know false information, you know, written about me, not just in blogs, but even like in right wing media, mm-hmm. and to the point that I even had this one guy, um, and it's happened. It's happened on more than one occasion, but just this year, uh, a state senator uh, in Michigan uh, talked against me on the state Senate floor. And I've also had some bogus stuff said about me in a, in a U.S. Um, House hearing committee hearing in Washington, D.C. So, you know, when, when people are involved in this work and you get in, in, the, in the limelight, that just invites a bunch of, right. of, of arrows. You become a right. target. So it ain't, ain't nothing. So, you know, when you're, for those activists who are young and, you know, why, and you haven't gotten that, 
exposure, you'll keep doing your work, but be careful what you aspire for, what you ask for. Like it's better to work behind the scenes. So once you get into the into the limelight, you, you're not just going to have haters. You're going to have people who really hate you. Yeah, right. So it's 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 it's, it's real. It's real out here. It's real. Right. And you know, I, I've I've seen you on some of the Talking Head shows, going like toe to toe with some of these white supremacists and alt right. And I will say this, they don't want none. Like, you <laughs> see, a knocked out, drag out, thugged out, the intellectual argument, like somebody with a sword, like the sword, you know what I'm saying? Just like cut them down, like cha-cha-cha. But I'm glad that you're on the side of the Jedi. Like, thank mm. you for uh, you use your voice fighting very that well. good. Yes, yes. Very well. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, for standing up, for fighting, for continuing. Because, right? Because it's scary. And uh, you you continue, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. You keep coming, keep coming. You arm us with information. Um, you show us, you know, how to how to live and be loved and appreciate you for everything that you are, everything that you bring to the culture, um, everything that you bring, you know, to our community, and uh, for being a great leader. You know what I'm saying? Like this is an amazing leader that decided. Okay, I'm going to come on your podcast and do your podcast. With so, such humility. Such humility. And, you know, when, like I, I always say, when you are a person um, of your background and you speak to your background and you stay humble and you, and you are boisterous, and I say that in a positive sense, um, it allows other people in on your process and allows them to see that they can do the same thing. It doesn't. It gives it permission. Does, yes. Yeah, it yes. gives person permission so, to live out loud. Yes. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you both for having me. Yeah. So with that, well, we have the launch good for our dear brother. Um, give us again where people can, um, you know, follow all of the things that you have going on. Uh. I have a um, a Twitter page. Uh, you can go at uh, at D A W U D W A L I D. That is D A W D W A L I D. And I also have a public uh, Facebook page or fan page, whatever you want to call it, uh, that I uh, update in a lot of my lectures, but also some of the cases that we deal with um, as an organization for ones I deal with in coalition with other organizations. Uh, and by the way, and just I mentioned it earlier too, that you know I'm black and I'm Muslim, but it doesn't preclude me from getting involved in other cases that relate to non-black folks or non-Muslim folks mm-hmm. because um, uh, justice isn't just us, right? So you'll, mm-hmm. you'll see at times, you know, I'll be involved in an issue that's, you know, work with our Latino brothers and sisters down in Southwest Detroit, mm-hmm. right? That's right. So, you know, so we, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't rock like that. I don't roll like that. You know, I understand. Yeah. You know, justice isn't just us. So right. Those are people can catch up um, with, with some of the, the activities that you know, I'm involved in, as well as with my um, with my colleagues. And we're gonna bring you back. Yeah, I was gonna say, can you please come back? Because I want to talk to you about the Muslims for America Progress. That page is awesome. Uh-huh. And like to how they set up and show the visions and the initiatives and and I know you're a part of care, but I also would really want to talk about your you know your your partake in that as well. So no problem. All right. Okay. So um, any last words? 
Well, this is a replay episode. You dropped a lot of gems. So I am so excited for our listeners to be able to have this breath of fresh air at this at this level. It's never dumbing it down, but you make it look cool. You made it so simplistic. And so <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, um, my last words, um, I'm just honored you uh, agreed to come on to the show. Um, I'm glad that you um, brought all of your wisdom with you so that people can see uh, who Muslims really are. Uh, so we have a voice of, uh, of our black Muslim community that's come here to like represent. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That um, That's what's up, because... Uh, People be afraid of Muslims. <laughs> Muslims are so loving and peaceful. Yeah, ain't no need, and, espe- and, no. And, and especially black folks, because right. we, at the end of the day, we all one people. So when you look at a, when you look at Dave Chappelle, you know, you look right. at Q-Tip. I mean, those are just Muslim brothers, right? But like, right. we just look at them. I mean, they black. You see them as black and part of our mm. part of the culture. But I mean, those are, you know, you just happen to be uh, Christian or Hebrew. Or 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 Rasta and the Kemet, but mm. and at the end of the day, I mean, those those brothers you see like 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 Tip or or, or Chappelle, those are those are your Muslim brothers right there. So they sure I mean, are. that's that's it is what it is. That's it. That's it. And so just you know, tune in Piper Carter podcast um, on Detroit is different. And we'll see you next week. Well, for more on the significance of the Michigan primary and concerns of people in Michigan, especially those who are Arab American, we go now to uh, Michigan, where we're joined by two guests. Chris Savage is a Michigan-based political writer and founder of Eclectablog, and Dawood Walid is the executive director of Care Michigan. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Dawood Walid, uh, there is a large American, Arab American population in Michigan, a large Muslim population in Michigan. Uh, talk about um, the uh, uh, the feeling about the Republican primary in Michigan and what uh, how the Arab American community was appealed to by the candidates. Well, going back to 2008, 90% of the American Muslim community, including Muslims in Michigan, voted for President Barack Obama. Uh, in saying that, um, there is some uh, disenchantment with some of President Obama's policies in terms of civil liberties, such as his signing of the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, his reaffirming the Patriot Act, and some of his foreign policy stances. However, within the GOP, uh, say uh, Ron Paul, uh, in terms of some of his foreign policy stances and civil liberties, uh, the Muslim community in general and Arab Americans really haven't been drawn to the GOP, one, because they haven't done any real outreach, but two, the GOP has used Islamophobia and xenophobia as a way of stirring up their base, from Romney to Gingrich and Santorum. They seem to use immigrants and Muslims as a whipping board to try to drum up support within the GOP base. Now, we have been covering the story that has been uh, being unfold—that uh, AP has continued to unfold about the New York Police Department uh, going beyond New York in targeting Muslims and tracking Muslims and Arab Americans. Um, you, Michigan, is on the Canadian border. Um, first, I want to play the New York Police Commissioner, Ray Kelly, last month, invoking the 9-11 attacks to defend the monitoring of Muslims. I believe we're doing what we have to do pursuant to the law to uh, protect the city, the city that's been attacked successfully twice, 
and had 14 plots uh, against it in, uh, you know, in the last uh, two decades. We now know that the AP, um, uh, because of the, uh, the Associated Press, that money was used from the White House, uh, federal money was used in this monitoring. I wanted to get your response to this, as well as what's happening on the Michigan border with Canada. Well, uh, being in Michigan and uh, our national organization, CARE, and we have an office in New York, we've joined other advocates in calling for Ray Kelly to resign. Uh, Ray Kelly, as well as his deputy chief, have completely trampled upon the spirit of the United States Constitution and wasted millions of taxpayer dollars with having uh, agents even overseas, much less going through in Connecticut and New Jersey, spying on where Muslims eat kebab to bean pie. And they have not uh, effectuated any tangible arrests relating to terrorism in regards to all this money they spent. They've basically been surveilling Americans with no predication. And this doesn't even include how the New York Police Department has been notorious with its stop-and-frisk program that has uh, targeted Latino youth, black youth, and the number of unarmed uh, youth of color that have been shot, and some fatally shot, by the New York Police Department. Remember to like. Share, subscribe, and always listen on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Store, and Spotify. Subscribe on Apple iTunes or Google Play to the Detroit is Different podcast. And don't miss the true stories that add to the culture of Detroit. This is the Detroit is Different podcast network, the culture of an American classic city.